Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hi, Mike. How's it going today? It's going great, Sherry. It's Friday, and how are you doing? I'm doing really well, and I just wanted to give a shout-out to our listeners out there, and thank you for taking the time out every week or whenever it's convenient for you to listen to Behind the Warrior podcast. We appreciate your support. Yes, we do. We do appreciate it. And today, Sherry, I'm looking forward to our interview for our podcast. Today, we have Greg Middleman. He is a retired EOD officer, United States Air Force. He serves on the NDIA EOD Advisory Committee, and he is the chairman of the board for the EOD Warrior Foundation. We are really glad to have him, and welcome, Greg. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you all. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, we are we are really glad to have you on today, and we are really looking forward to all that you have to share with, with our audience. So we have a lot to talk about and uh, want to share some of your highlights in a long career with the U.S. Air Force, the EOD career field, and your contributions to the EOD community, which are still ongoing. So what experiences, going back, what experiences led you to become an Air Force officer in the first place and then later on uh, move your move to EOD? Uh, what experiences? Why? Well, that's got to be as a uh, Air Force dependent. My father had a long career in the Air Force, and uh, we lived predominantly in uh, in Texas. We had several assignments around there, but from the end of seventh grade till I graduated high school, we're actually over at Clark Air Base in the Philippines. Uh, being a dependent is very much different uh, living overseas on a base than it is, you know, being back in CONUS. Uh, you're, you're very much immersed in what goes on in the base. And Clark at that time, it was 1971 to 1976, was very busy uh, supporting what was going on in Vietnam and uh, all that that entailed. And when a lot of current events that affected the world went on, a lot of the times they, they happened to involve Clark. So uh, whether it was uh, going out to returning POWs coming back from, from Vietnam uh, to greeting all those planes and meeting those gentlemen as they returned or uh, anything else that, that involves the base, uh, you were immersed in it. And so those were kind of those early high school years. And um, I think that had an effect on me to, to have a, a deep, sincere interest uh, for the Air Force. But after high school, I came back to Texas for college, and um, I didn't really feel like I knew, you know, what it was like to be a, a kid growing up in the state. So I, I didn't really have plans initially to go into the military. Um, but after my second year in college, I, I decided that, you know, I wanted to get back overseas, and I thought the military was the way to do it. So uh, I went the uh, reserve officer training route, and. Uh, got sworn in and went through the commissioning program. And uh, um, after graduation, went on about my first assignment. My first assignment was actually as a munitions officer. We didn't have a lot of choice in it. We got to put uh, our desires on a dream sheet. Um, munitions officer was not one of mine, but I did get one of my locations, which was Hawaii, Blue Air Force Base, Hawaii. So that was a good deal. Um but I didn't know anything about munitions officers. So when I read up on that, you know, talked about supporting the flight line, 
uh, with the storage and handling and transportation and delivery and buildup of ordnance for, for aircraft. And then down at the bottom of the page, it had this little thing down there called uh, EOD. It was a shred out of the AFSC. Instead of being a, a 4054A, you became a 4054AB. And I read about EOD and I said, you know, I remember those guys uh, coming and briefing the high school students, telling us to stay out of the caves in the jungle because of all the World War II ordinance that was still out there and those kinds of things. And, and I thought, that's pretty interesting. I wonder how you do that. And so essentially, the rules were then at the time, you didn't go straight into EOD. You had to be a munitions officer first, and you got a couple of assignments under your belt. And that's what I did, um, ultimately going to EOD school. And uh, that was all volunteer. And prior to that, I spent a lot of time with EOD units on bases that I was at. I got to know a lot of folks uh, and was uh, was supported very well by some of the chiefs in the community who were... Uh, uh, instrumental in, in making sure that uh, that I came on board in the EOD program. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that, Greg. So I also understand that you attended EOD school when it was located in Indian Head, Maryland, and I'm sure that it looked a little different and, um, than it does today, for sure, for students and instructors. But um, I think I want to drill down to just ask you what your experience was in reference to attending an EOD memorial ceremony at that time. Yeah, um, things were really quite different at Indian Head than they, than they are at uh, Eglin. Um, our school started out at Redstone Arsenal at that time where we had our chem bio warfare program for about two weeks, and then we went up to Indian Head. And I remember driving through the gate on Indian Head Naval Ordnance Station, and almost as soon as you came on the gate, there was a split in the road. And in that split sat the EOD Memorial. And for what, all I'd known about EOD prior to to coming there. I never really heard anybody talk about the memorial. So after I got myself situated that evening, I came back over and paid my respects at the memorial. And, um, you know, it was, uh, the memorial was smaller. The cenotaphs are the same that we have now, but the construction of the entire site was much smaller, um, but no less meaningful. Um, it, it, it did have a profound impact on me when I first went there, and I would continue to go back throughout my training. What did happen later on, though, uh, when we approached what would be equivalent to now our memorial events that we have every May in the beginning of May, um, we had the memorial, uh, what would be our memorial ball now was essentially a potluck dinner with a boombox in the old mine museum, and then they had the memorial ceremony. And the memorial ceremony, uh, very similar to what we have these days, just on a much smaller scale, I would say. Um, the ceremony while I was there, I had the privilege of standing in for the, uh, as the formation commander of all of the Air Force staff and students. The actual unit commander was, uh, of course, laying the wreath, but his uh, staff members were gone on temporary duty or leave, I'm not sure which, but... Uh, I was asked to stand in, so I was pretty honored about that to have these EOD techs and fellow students uh, in the formation of, of which I was ahead. Again, that, that left an impact on me to have some involvement in that ceremony in my first, uh, before even leaving school. Mm-hmm. And that stayed with me through my career on to uh, uh, some events later on towards the end of my career 
when I was stationed at Agron with the new memorial. My next question is leading into that, actually, Greg, in, in reference to the memorial actually moving and the schoolhouse actually moving from Indian Head to Eglin Air Force Base here in the Panhandle. And um, if you can share with our listeners what that transition was actually like and then what your experience was specifically regarding the first EOD memorial that was held here once the once the memorial um, was relocated here at Eglin. Yeah, absolutely, Sherry. Um, so I was assigned to the schoolhouse uh, from 98 until I retired, and that was the final part of the consolidation of NAV School EOD from Indian Head down to Eglin Air Force Base, and we stood up the complete school. And during that time frame is when they uh, built the new memorial, and we ultimately moved the cenotaphs uh, down to and, and had the opening for the new memorial that, as it exists today in Eglin, you know, much much larger in scale and scope, uh, provides for a troop assembly area, and... Um, sitting appropriately enough right across the street from, from the schoolhouse instead of down the road. Um, still, every bit as, as honorable and memorable a place today as it was was back then, but I was happy to be there as we had the initial ceremonies at the memorial um, as the Air Force Detachment Commander. Um, I had the honor of laying that first wreath at the Air Force Cenotaph, uh, not something I took very lightly either. Uh, the place is very special indeed, and um, I'm, I'm glad that we have a part of it still today uh, as a part of as the EOD Warrior Foundation, as one of our pillars to care for the memorial, and it's a very significant part of what we do. And I know from that very first time seeing and participating back uh, at Indian Head, and then uh, actually laying that, that first wreath at the Air Force Cenotaph and going to countless ceremonies since. Um, the ceremonies have gotten uh, a little bit bigger. We have many more staff and students going through. We have other people that are uh, involved in the community now and that come down for those ceremonies. And um, it's all in, in respect for, for our fallen brothers and sisters. And uh, I can't think of a place that uh, that I feel uh, more drawn to when I get to Eglin. Anytime I go up to that area, I make a trip by and I have to stop and spend a few moments there. It's a special place. It certainly is, Greg. It's a very somber, somber place and a, a great way to honor our, our fallen servicemen and women. So... Um, can you share with our listeners, Greg, as you mentioned, you were deck commander for the Air Force students during your time here at um, NAV School EOD, but you you have a specific leadership style or a theory, and I think it's interesting. And can you share that with our listeners and, and how you implemented that and, and what your philosophy is? Um, you know, I think that um, there's certainly a lot of people over time that have written and waxed eloquent about leadership and leadership styles and whether it's a historical perspective or, or what they did, you know, I, I know, I know what mine came from and, and that's really from my dad and his NCOs and my exposure to them. Um, my dad was in uh, what used to be air police that became 
security police and then security forces as it is today. But back then, it was really heavily oriented towards you know what they call air-based ground defense and um, very heavily enlisted populated career field. And my dad um, was definitely the kind of person you know that that looked after his his people. And was out and involved with them, uh, and you know, I even noticed this as a kid, you know, and, and I could see it with uh, with the NCOs that he worked with. That um, you know, they were ever present in my lives, and I think it was uh, a testament to the way that my dad was involved and and, and tried to take care of his people and, and be a kind of a leader that they needed. Um, and through that, you know, I I had the perspective of you know an officer and what his responsibilities were and, and the NCOs and senior NCOs that uh, he was uh, assigned with and their perspective as well. And they never made, uh, uh, they didn't take light of making, taking opportunities to share, share their thoughts with me, you know, especially once I was getting ready to uh, go to school and get commissioned. Um, and it's, I held, you know, I held all of their, uh, their lessons and their thoughts dear to my heart, but essentially what I felt worked for me and was significant to me was that, you know, a leader's got to be present. Um, you've got to be available and visible for your people and put them, put them first, make sure that they've got the things that they need to be able to do that job, whatever it may be, whatever career field it may be. And, you've got to be able to take them through that. And to do that, you've got to be able to understand where they are so that you've got to have a technical competence about what their particular job is in addition to your role as being an officer and a leader. So I know for the, in the UD community, if you will, for example, um, I know when I went to my first actual EOD assignment, um, I spent some time initially, you know, learning about the interaction of the unit with the base and, the, and our effect on what was going on with this range mission uh, at Eglin Air Force Base at the time. That was my first assignment. I was 100 and some odd, ultimately 125 EOD techs assigned doing a huge R&D mission um, in the mid-80s. And learning how that all interfaced and how that all worked. And so once, you know, I, I had that, down after the first, you know, couple of weeks on what that, all that was and, and getting to meet everybody in the shop and all those initial things you kind of do. You know, I told the chief, said, you know, I'm going to take care of all this officer stuff, all the paperwork and things I need to do in the evening, but during the daytime, I'm going to be out on range uh, for, the, for the next couple of months. And to get out and work with and understand hands-on and getting dirty so that I can have a full comprehension of what it is my people did what they needed, what uh, it took to get their job done, what the pitfalls, shortfalls may be, how you get around those, um, and then what it is that they needed from me and how did I go about making their job uh, more successful, more rewarding uh, for them and for those that it affected. And, you know, it all comes down to that, being available and being technical knowledge and competence so that you can help your people face the issues that they need and get there uh, to whatever that ultimate goal is and uh, do it in a, in a favorable winning way where, you know, everybody's 
everybody's working hard, everybody's playing hard. They feel like they're taken care of. They can do what they need to do. Uh, they know that they can trust you, and, uh, and you can trust them. And it's, I think that's a, just a big part of it is that, that technical competence and that availability and that interface and knowing that communication can be there. And you, know, you trust one another and you work together and you take care of your folks and they take care of you. And I think that's just probably about the, the biggest part of it all together. Um, and that's what worked for me. Um, and I, I think I probably never gave it a lot of thought as I went through things, but it worked and it worked everywhere I went. Um, and it was natural for me to do that because that's the way I was brought up into the military, if you will, as a dependent, seeing that happen. Um, there was two things that sort of rewarded me, if you will, about that. Um, two events as a probably senior, I guess, maybe captain at the time. I had the you know, stereotypical crusty old master sergeant come up to me one day and said, sir. You make a hell of a staff sergeant. And yet, blunt people probably paused and thought he was being rude. But uh, I'll tell you what, that was one of the biggest compliments I ever had in my life because it was the staff sergeants uh, that were out there running those teams and making things happen uh, and doing it every single day. And uh, really, really the heart and soul and backbone of, of the units at the time. Uh, and for him to think that I could carry out those tasks, I thought, uh, I thought that was, uh, um, a heck of a compliment and that's the way he meant it. But, uh, but I took it to heart and I, I made me feel like I was doing a little bit of something right. And then later on, as I retired uh, in time, um, I won't say the individual name and I won't even say what service he's from, but, uh, after the, my retirement ceremony was over, uh, where, you know, cutting the cake and shaking hands and all that sort of stuff is uh, an E-9 from another service walked up to me and uh, took his rank insignia off of his uniform and put it in my hand and shook my hand. And that was, uh, that was pretty stunning to me uh, for him to do that. And um, I felt like, especially coming from another service, uh, somebody that I had a lot of respect for and their service had a lot of respect for uh, to do that and have that feeling that, you know, that they, he trusted me to, to hold that insignia that uh, it uh, definitely gave me this feeling that I had done something right and that I had an effect on, on some people and it was equally so. They did on me as well. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's, you know, be there for your people, be present, be available, communicate with them, and do your best to know everything about what it is, hands-on, that they do, and and be able to work that with them. Greg, thank you so much for sharing your, your thoughts on uh, your philosophy and your leadership style. And uh, you and I both served in the Air Force around the same time. I was on the flight line for most of my Air Force career, and I can absolutely agree with you that uh, staff sergeants were the backbone of the flight line. Uh, they were the ones who, who ran the maintenance up and down the line, and we took all our cues from them. They kept things running. And uh, looking back, you know, in hindsight, uh, you retired um, in the turn of the century, and now it's 20 years on, 
And I think sometimes uh, you, you can have some perspective and things kind of change as far as the military adapts and evolves. And some things stay the same, but some things do change. So now that you're looking back upon this 20 years later, do you have the same mindset or or has things changed? What advice would you give to current EOD leaders if there was anything you'd like to share um, what are you thinking about now in 2020 versus 2000 when you retired? Yeah, good question, Mike, and thanks for that because uh, 20 years on, so that's like being retired for a whole nother career. <laughs> right, <you>. exactly. <laughs> I feel you. I'm with you. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there's some differences um, because of the kind of people that are growing up today are more tech savvy. You know, I came out of that generation that was very much playing, you know, football and baseball out in the street and out in the sandlot. We were always outside doing this and that, you know, it wasn't the Xboxes and computer and the technology you have today. So this, I know there's a little bit of a different mindset there, but I think bottom line is that, you know, as a, as a leader, you've got to develop your own style. Um, you got to figure out what works best for you and, and, you're going to learn and change those sort of things, but, you know, just remember to be present and, and have a solemn foundation of what it is your people do. And then you need to be prepared to modify that style to fit particular situations and environments that you're in, because one style isn't going to fit every environment and every, every circumstance. So choose what's best for you, figure out where and when and how it fits and, uh, and develop it and grow it. I love it. Uh, thank you for sharing that, and uh, I think that's great advice. Um, now I want to go ahead and pivot a little bit. So it's 2000. You have retired from the Air Force, and I have a, a couple couple questions. This is like a two-part question for you. Number one, um, and this, this is still one question, but were you ready for retirement? You know, what was your transition initially like? And then uh, we know that you became a certified personal chef. So we're really interested to hear about that too. But if you could talk about uh, what your transition was like when you retired and uh, and then leading into the personal chef, I can't wait to hear that story. Yes, sure, Mike. Um my transition, I wasn't ready to retire necessarily. Uh, I got married late in life. Um, I, I put off any kind of, you know, relationship like that just because I was so busy with what I was doing that, you know, that wasn't the front part of, of where I was going in my life. But I did get married in February of 2000. And shortly after that, um, I got orders to go to Air War College. And, um, I had to think about that. My new wife was down in Tampa while I was up at Eglin, and I had a stepdaughter who had a full-ride scholarship already to go to Florida State. My wife was doing well in her professional career, and so I had to do you know, sort of an analysis on what that meant for me to go to war college. Uh, one of those was that you know after you attend the school, year-long school, that you pick up additional time that you have to stay on duty. Uh, and then with the other things, you know, the other blocks that are checked off in your career, meeting certain goals and milestones. If you attended Air War College and residence, it's like a 98% chance of you being selected for promotion. Uh, and that meant, of course, a follow-on assignment. So I was looking at, you know, probably another five to six years of staying in. 
So I, I kind of weighed that against about where my new family was and what was going on with them. And um, I, I just decided that, you know, okay, let's um, get a new family. They've got things going good in Tampa. Uh, getting ready to start college. Um, maybe this is a time. And so I, I chose to retire and turn those orders back in and retired in October of 2000. So it was all kind of short notice, you know, relative terms. And uh, I didn't have a plan. I was on the non-plan plan. And uh, I sort of decided that, you know, if I'm going to bail out and I'm going to do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something totally different. I'm, I'm not going to become a defense contractor or... Or maybe even do anything at all in the arena that, you know, I had been doing for the last, you know, so many years in the Air Force. And uh, so I spent the first couple of years sort of hardscaping and landscaping and re-hardscaping and re-landscaping the yard and trying to figure out what it is I did want to do and watched a lot of food TV because I'd always had a passion for cooking and a real heavy interest in it. Uh, sort of a family thing to do and. I had uh, friends overseas, what became friends overseas that, you know, uh, allowed me to come into their kitchens and see what they were doing and how they did things. And I saw a program about personal chefs uh, and it got me real interested. So I contacted the U.S. Personal Chefs Association and signed up and went out to the school, which was in Albuquerque. And I got certified, went through that training program. And I came back to Tampa and, and I set up a small business. Uh, doing personal chef and small catering work. And I did that for a couple of years. Um, and I had a great time with it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, did small events and there were other personal chefs in the area we would work with, uh, uh, come in just so we kept it, kept it small and, uh, very focused and, um, very specific to what, you know, an individual wanted to do, whether it was just have the hors d'oeuvres or a small dinner for a wedding reception or whatever it might be. Uh, but I had a good time with it and, and really enjoyed it very, very much and kind of got onto a new niche uh, that I never really planned on. And I still don't know how this happened, but I started getting calls for people with special dietary needs um, because of, you know, whatever kind of medical treatment, whether it was a cancer or Crohn's or, or whatever, uh, they were looking for some very specific things that were difficult to uh, to do as a general rule in terms of diet, they could have vitamin K or they couldn't, or they could have this, but they couldn't have that, no seeds. And it became very, uh, very interesting. And uh, so I did that for a couple of years and uh, until I got drawn away from it, uh, from an old chief that I'd worked with uh, over the years. He was a very good friend, still is today. And uh, got the hooks in me to go ahead and move on and try something new. Uh, but I had a good time doing the personal chef business and I, I still, still love to cook today and I still like to spend my time in the kitchen or, or around the grill. Yeah. I just want to follow up with you real quick and, and say that, uh, when I retired, I did something completely different too. It was outside my comfort zone. I'm really glad I did it. Uh, it, it was great. I love that kind of having a different experience and, uh, it, it was, it was good, I think, to, to get out of being in the military like, like yourself. I was also a military dependent. And so I'd been in the military. I felt like my entire life when I retired and, uh, it was, it was great to do something completely different. Do you think it's a good idea to try something different after you get out, if you're comfortable with that or uncomfortable or just go ahead and do it? And, and, uh, you know, do you think that's a good experience to have for, for those of us who've been in the military so long? 
I, I do think it's it's good if you if you have an interest or develop an interest and uh, you know what what better time to go ahead and and do what it is that, that maybe if not your calling is your happy zone uh, something that, that piques your curiosity and and piques your interests and and allows you to you know express yourself in a in a different way than what you've been doing and why not why not I think that's a great opportunity you know especially with the with the educational you know, opportunities that there are today, um, whether it be online or whether it, uh, you know, be using your GI Bill or, or whatever, there's, there's, uh, different kinds of programs that you can go and do a lot more readily these days to get involved in something that, uh, maybe you've not done before, but you have, but you have an interest in. So retirement, you know, that's a good, good opportunity to try something new. Absolutely. Um, as long as, uh, you know, you're able to, you know, be supported by what it is in your retirement or, you know, your family's income and those sorts of things are all taken care of and you have that opportunity to do that, then I say go for it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. And now we're going to have a team building event here at the office where you show us some of your mad personal chef skills, Greg. Yeah, we're waiting for the ingredients <laughs> list. <laughs> you need to put the task. Huh? We will all be we will all be your sous chefs. Just let us know what we can do. <laughs> um, well, you mentioned that uh, you you did the personal chef gig for about two years and then you were drawn away by a friend and you spent several years uh, involved in military training programs. Can you briefly tell us what those programs were like and what the overall p- impact was for our military community? Yes, absolutely. Sherry. Um, yeah. The gentleman that, that uh, got a hold of me, uh, tried to get me to come out to Las Vegas because he said he, they were doing something uh, with his company that uh, he thought I'd be interested in that I, I assumed he thought I'd be good at it, otherwise he wouldn't have bothered me. But uh, he said, you know, why don't you come out to Vegas, talk to us, see what's going on. And I told him, no, I don't want to. I'm having fun with this. This is good. And uh, He said, no, really, you should come on out and I'll send you a plane ticket. It's all on, all on the company. And I kept talking at it and he finally said does your dad like to gamble i said yeah why he goes well bring him too so my dad and i went out for a weekend out to vegas uh, dad went to the crap tables and i went out to speak with them and uh essentially they got their hooks in me i liked what they were doing which was you know 2002 these are some uh, doing some advanced ied training this is some of the earliest programs that were out there uh after 9-11 uh, work in a program with a uh, cadre of uh, British EOD techs uh, going around teaching uh, our public safety bomb tech brothers and sisters how to deal with car bombs and uh, vehicular devices of all sorts. And uh, it was fun. I, I was really, I, it piqued my interest. And uh, I thought, okay, well, you know, this, this came my way. Let's go ahead and let's make another shift. And so I did that for a couple of years, and then uh, those programs kind of closed down. And I, I, while trying to drum up some new business, I found a place close to home called the National Terrorism Preparedness Institute at St. Petersburg College. Um, and those people were interested in me coming out there, and uh, I did. And so when those programs ended with the other company, I went to NTPI and got involved in developing training programs for them uh, in the area that involved um, 
anti-terrorism, counter-terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, EOD, all of that sort of homeland security kind of stuff. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a great time. That was a really great time. I got involved in, uh, with some incredibly talented people doing, uh, you know, online training and training the trainer programs and web-based training and all those sorts of things. But the thing that really got my interest up was learning about video. You know, I partnered with, uh, some filmmakers, uh, in the area that have, you know, major motion picture experience and done a lot of work with Nat Geo and Discovery and won Emmy Awards and, you know, real, real deal, uh, kind of film production. Uh, and we created some training, uh, centered around, uh, those videos. Um, for example, uh, one of them was, uh, on, at the time was called tactical site exploitation, became sensitive site exploitation or just site exploitation where essentially it was a, a CSI kind of a thing where we took, um, there was a need for Marines, uh, who were done kicking in doors and taking names uh, to start collecting evidence to assist the prosecution of uh, Iraqi dissidents and terrorists uh, out in Anbar province so that they could keep them in jail longer uh, because they had been rotating them in and out because of the hearsay-based evidence that the judicial system used. It was easy to threaten somebody so that they wouldn't testify. So the U.S. decided, well, you know, how about we get you over on an evidence-based system? And uh, that started working to keep people in jail longer because what the young Marines were doing uh, while they were done training was they would start collecting evidence, you know, doing all the diagrams and the photographs and uh, sampling uh, evidence and collecting it properly and creating a chain of custody. And so we developed this training on how to do that, and we did a 20-minute film uh, that was a story-based uh uh, learning experience and incorporate showed that as a as a, a teaser in the beginning on why you should be interested in this because it went through the story of one of their brothers being hit by a sniper and how they went to collect evidence uh, and ultimately prosecute the guy. Um, so we then took clips from the video incorporated into the training to reinforce the learning points and it was very successful, very very successful. We won a lot of awards, video awards. Uh, Kelly Awards, Aurora uh, Awards, and uh, Cine Golden Eagle, which are all pretty high-level awards, and it just really gave me the video bug. So we went out and, uh, based on that, with a friend who was an instructional technologist at the time, we started our own company, um, Studio 14B, and uh, went on doing the same sorts of things, creating those types, different types of training uh, for the government, uh, and did that... Uh, for oh, quite a while, uh, and were successful at it. And more importantly, we had a good time at it. And uh, our customers seemed to like what we were doing. They came back to us repeatedly. And um, it was another twist, another change, if you will. And uh, uh, my evolution of life after retirement. So I, I had several changes like that. Oh, very cool. It's It's always awesome to enjoy the work that you do, you know, have have meaning to the work in addition to having some fun. And um sounds like you, you achieved all of those goals. <laughs> yeah, I, fun is definitely a part of it. I, you know, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then, you know, 
if you can try and find something else. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If it's, if it's available out there. Yep. Um, well, Greg, you are certainly a highly respected, um, gentlemen within the EOD community, and recently you became the EOD Warrior Foundation chairman and have been very active in working to improve the lives of EOD technicians and their families for many years. You have been involved in speaking to and briefing members of the Congressional EOD Caucus, and can you tell us a little bit about our EOD congressmen and why briefing them is so important to our community? Yeah, sure. That's uh, that's sort of uh, an interesting uh, event twist, if you will, to to my having been involved in the UD Memorial Foundation previously, and then the UD Warrior Foundation, and then also with the NDIA. Because it gave me an opportunity to go in to Congressman Rick Crawford's office. Uh, Congressman Crawford uh, founded, along with uh, Congressman Susan Davis. Uh, a Republican and a Democrat founded the EOD caucus back in about 2011 to uh, advocate for and to speak about and educate uh, Congress uh, about EOD. Uh, and that caucus has grown. Uh, it's about 22 members now. It goes, it fluctuates a little bit over time, but there are four co-chairs, still Congressman Crawford, uh, who, if people don't know, is a uh, former Army EOD tech and by the way, his dad was a retired Air Force EOD tech. Um, you have Congressman Brian Mast, former Army EOD tech, as a co-chair. And then Susan Davis, uh, still from California, still a co-chair. And then uh, Jimmy Panetta out of California is also uh, a co-chair. And then I think there's, like I said, 21, 22 other members of the caucus. So when going to speak to them, uh, I essentially just talk to them and update, especially, you know, Cong- Congressman Crawford, uh, on, you know, where the foundation is at and what we're doing and what we're looking at and what we're looking to go. Uh, he has concerns, obviously, as do a lot of people about, um, um, you know, suicide awareness and the effects of suicide on the community and, and how we can go about getting that awareness out and that word out, uh, to people who, um, keep an eye out and to take care of one another within our community. He's interested in that. He's interested in what we're doing with PTSD and, uh, and TBI and other entities that are uh, working with those, you know, brain injury types of, of things. Uh, they have an interest in that because when they speak and work towards uh, working on uh, defense authorizations, you know, they're trying to create a better force structure for EAD. Uh, and in doing that, our end of it is, is sort of the end result. And that effect has an effect on what they're doing, uh, in terms of the force structure. You know, they've got to know what, what they're doing is being done the right way and how they can go maybe about doing things in a better way and support different things, uh, to mitigate the types of, uh, injuries that perhaps are being, uh, seen on the battlefield, you know, whether they be the physical injuries or, as we call them, the unseen injuries uh, that come about later on through you know, PTSD or or the effects of traumatic brain injuries. So 
you know, when they see and they know about those kinds of things, it has an effect on what they speak to and, and how they evolve the legislation and authorizations. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it's important. Um, I don't get up there a lot, but I do communicate, you know, through the staff members if I'm not able to go up there. But uh, I do make a point of being up there for the EOD on the Hill events. Um, do two different types of events uh, on the first uh, during November of each year. Um, we bring up teams from each of the year, uh, each each of the services, and they bring up the equipment, and they're there to talk to staff members and congressmen and, and other visitors about what it is that DOD does. Uh, and it's a very very well attended event, and uh, get senators that come over and congressmen and all their staffers and. Uh, we have nonprofits that are up there. Uh, you know, formally when it first started, you know, we had the Memorial Foundation, we had the Wounded EOD Warrior Foundation, which both of those obviously became who we are today in 2013 as the EOD Warrior Foundation. So we still go up there for those, uh, and we talk and spend time with those people so that they understand, you know, who we are and what we're doing and what the effects of all those things are on our community. And, uh, still important today. Um, and we'll be going forward. And I'm glad that they have that interest, that they want to know what we're going through uh, and what our community is going through, you know, after they've, after they've left service. So they all care, and uh, we're going to continue to be involved with them as best we can to help them uh, understand and see where uh, the community lies. Well, thank you for that. It's certainly important work, and um, I remember going to the Hill on for EOD Day on the Hill uh, several times, so it's it's very important, and thank you for staying connected with them. Um, well, Greg, as the new chairman of the EOD Warrior Foundation, how do you see the EOD Warrior Foundation team and board of directors working together to carry out our mission in serving this great community? Thanks for that question. I appreciate that. Um, our board of directors, um, if people aren't familiar with who they are, you know, go to the UVWarriorFoundation.org website, click on about and, uh, select team. And from there, you can see our actual staff members, our board of directors, our honorary board of directors, um, and see who those people are because, uh, they're all, the board directors are all, you know, coming out of members who come out of the EOD community. They're all people who have a passion for EOD uh, and are involved in the EOD community in some way, either a wife, perhaps, or a you know retired tech, uh, a wounded tech, um, somebody from a very specific uh, EOD-oriented industry. You know, all those different types of things. And in the past, we've had, you know, gold star membership, you know, wives and, uh, and, um, um, mothers. And we've tried to keep that board so that it is somewhat representative of the community and so that we, they can speak to different needs within the community. Um, as I said, they're all volunteers. They all work very hard and they have a couple of different specific things they're supposed to do. Uh, one is that they're, they're fundraisers. They're fundraisers for the foundation. Uh, the other is that uh, the board is supposed to create the strategic plan, the strategic vision on where the foundation needs to go down the road. Um, now, it's not done, you know, in a, in a vacuum. The board does that with, with the staff, with 
with you all. You know, Nicole Motzik is our executive director, brilliantly leads the foundation, and you, Sherry, the director of programs, and Mike is a family caseworker. Melissa, who's our you know, director of memorial care and, and events, uh, got Caroline doing the scholarship and marketing. Patricia is our development officer, and Jacqueline is our accountant. You all are our team. You're all making things happen day to day, and so you're integrated into that strategic planning process too. The board of directors um, may do initial planning and look at how the funds are expended ultimately to do those sorts of things. But they, we do it in conjunction with our strategic planning with you all, with the staff. Uh, and that way you've got those who are executing and those who are looking down the road to ultimately provide service to raise funds planning and doing things together in the same one. And I think it creates a more cohesive plan. It also provides opportunity, I think, the board and the staff to interact and speak to one another. Um, again, you know, it comes back to that thing I talked about in, in presence. And I think we have to be involved with one another so that, you know, you can understand perfectly, you know, where uh, we're looking to have the foundation go. And then the board can understand, you know, what the constraints are and the pros and cons about certain things that we're doing from the people who are actually carrying them out. Um, it's, it's an important relationship and um, it's one that I'm, I'm quite proud of uh, that has been developed over the years. And I, I think we're going the right direction. And um, I think it's one that will probably not differ a whole lot other than personalities. I think we're going to continue to have our staff and our, and our board work together. I think it's successful. Um, I think it's proven successful this year in particular. Um, you all have come up with some great ideas and great opportunities and trying to change the look and uh, feel of how we, we support our community through fundraising events and, and services uh, by adapting to you know, meet the constraints of, of COVID and the effects of COVID and guidelines for the various communities around the country. And uh, you all are, are taking the lead in that and the board is supporting you and I uh, I think that'll be our way going forward. Um, the two working hand in hand as best as possible. Greg, uh, looking looking into the future and also being mindful that we're currently in a in a worldwide pandemic that that affects each and every one of us uh, personally, professionally, workplace, etc. Um, other than COVID, what do you see any other challenges? And what is your vision for the UD Warrior Foundation going forward? Mike, I think that um, our biggest challenge has been and is going to be fundraising, um, and that's for a lot of reasons. But, uh, you know, in particular with our conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan at their waning moments that they are, um, people take that as a sign of, uh, you know, okay, I, I can cut back on support, but also they've been doing it for a long time. They've been supporting us for a long time. You know, some people are looking for different things to support. Some people are looking to, to not support, whatever the case may be. But it's it's been a long road uh, through these conflicts. And I think there's some donor weariness out there. And it's not just, not just us, but uh, other organizations as well. And so I think fundraising is going to continue to be a challenge for a lot of reasons. You know, we've traditionally been a grassroots organization over time, uh, both uh, 
you know, our predecessor organizations and the EOD Warrior Foundation, and it's still a solid part of who we are. But we need to make sure that our community stays aware um, with fewer and fewer deployments and more youth coming into the career field. There's fewer, all these younger people may have less opportunity to experience firsthand the effects of time on the battlefield uh, and what that does to the EOD community, you know, through injuries and stresses on the families and stresses on the uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and how the EOD Warrior Foundation fits in to support that. Um, so we need to make sure that our younger population of EOD techs uh, maintain the knowledge of who and what the foundation is and that we garner their support early on in their careers and that it's sustained. Um, so we, we need to continue that grassroots effort. But, you know, we've also got to uh, continue to support our other types of donors. You know, we have the grassroots who are private donors. We have private donors who are outside the EOD community that we've got to continue to grow and to sustain their interest. Um, we've got industry and business partners who are donors and contributors that we have to continue to, to, uh, to please and maintain their interest. And then we've also got relationships with our nonprofit partners that we've also got to work on. So there's kind of like four areas to that that all contribute in one form or fashion to, to fundraising, whether it's, uh, whether it's actual dollars or whether it's in-kind donations of some sort. Um, all of those things are going to be a challenge in the future to continue to do. And we've got to find new ways to go about finding donuts uh, in all those areas. And we've got to find ways to sustain their interest and to uh, ensure that we provide every bit of accountability and transparency and responsibility and caring for the donations, the hard-earned dollars that they provide to us so that uh, they know that their donations are being used in the best possible manner and that we are making the best use out of all those dollars and providing the services that we do to the community, whether it's a scholarship or a retreat or anything that falls within the four pillars. Um, so that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's the challenge and, and that's the vision to bring those four things together and uh, to maintain, maintain our livelihood as a foundation and taking care of our family, our EOD family. Greg, thanks for sharing um, your thoughts and insights into that. And uh, we really appreciate uh, having you on today and talking about your your professional life and all the things that you've done and still do and contribute uh, to this EOD community. So thank you so much for everything that, that you've done and, and continue to do. And uh, I want to go ahead and pivot again. Uh, this is, uh, we're getting to the end of the podcast and I want to talk about uh, you. I want to hear some interesting things about you that uh, maybe others don't know. So this is what we like to call our let's have some fun section. So we're going to ask you what your favorites are. And uh, first, we're going to start off by asking you, what's your favorite book? What's my favorite book? Um, you know, this is gonna, these aren't tough, but I, I don't know that I have a single favorite because, you know, I kind of look at different things, uh, you know, whether I want to entertain myself or educate myself. But I'll throw a couple at you. One of them was called Five Years to Freedom. It was about uh, uh, Special Forces, a Green Beret uh, captain at the time who was captured early in the Vietnam conflict 
I think about 1963 as an advisor uh, and spent five years uh, as a prisoner of the Viet Cong in South Vietnam uh, and his time terrorist tribulations and efforts to escape from his uh, small bamboo cage that he was living in. Um, great, tremendous story uh, about Colonel Rowe. Um, and it's, I first picked that up in high school and um, I reread it, if not every year, at least every other year. And it's called Five Years to Freedom and it's a, it's a great, great book to read. Uh, an unbelievable tale. So that would be one of them. Um, the other is uh, probably the James Clavell saga, Asian saga. Um, people are probably most familiar with Shogun. It was made into a miniseries and very popular. But there's actually, I think, I'm going to say six or seven books in the series, uh, and they're all sort of interrelated. Uh, they go from Japan, found, uh, founding of the uh, uh, European settler influence uh, and trader influence in early Japan to... Uh, colonists establishing Hong Kong, uh, ultimately ending uh, to uh, the events that uh, led to the overthrow in uh, Iran in 1980, uh, and all the families that are affected during this time frame, these various time frames. So I, I would say the Clavel series uh, and Five Years to Freedom, those are probably the biggest books, and that was a lot longer answer than you probably wanted. No, I, actually, that's pretty cool. Uh, I have not read those books myself, so I'm looking forward to putting that on my uh, future list to read. So thank you. How about uh, your favorite movie or genre of movies? Uh, that's that's another one that's a toughie. depends on you know what kind of mood I'm in, I guess. But I'll throw you a couple and one because it makes me laugh every single time I watch it. And I love being able to laugh. And My Cousin Vinny. If I'm channel surfing and I come across that thing, it doesn't matter where in the movie it is, I stop and I pick it up and just watch it from right there. So that, that's one, my cousin Benny. Uh, and then I'll go back to my childhood, and I still love to watch, and that's The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and then uh, I would say um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is, is another one. Uh, a little adventuresome as, uh, as a boy who grew up in Texas with uh, the Western feel. Nice. Good good selection of movies there. And uh, so since you were a personal chef, I think that it it's only fitting that you tell us what is your favorite meal to prepare. Wow. Um, I think I find myself gravitating uh, more to Mexican than anything else. Um, family gets tired of it. <laughs> it wants me to do different stuff, I think. But uh, uh, I think my favorite is, is probably Mexican, and that's probably partially to do with having grown up on the border in Texas and uh, Central Texas. And uh, but other than that, then I think it would have to be something on the grill, barbecue, because of the social component that goes along with that. Nice. Well, I tell you what, it's getting close to lunch. I'm getting hungry, so we got to wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> so well, where are you going? Part <laughs> <laughs> Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be disappointed though. Looking forward to uh, tasting what you make when you come back. Yeah. So, uh, last one for you. Of uh, I know that you've traveled extensively throughout the world, and of all the places that you have visited, what was what was the most memorable or or the favorite place that you visited in your travels? Wow, a favorite place to travel. You know, I. Uh I was very fond of Hawaii. I was fortunate to have had three different assignments there. Um, 
and and I do love the islands. And I thought at one time that uh, you know before I got married that uh, you know I can see myself being retired here and living on a sailboat. And that's that's probably a movie somewhere. But uh, Hawaii, I was very fond of. But I'd have to say the Pacific in general. The Philippines had a great impact on me, having spent you know five years there as a dependent. Um, but uh, you know my heritage also comes from England, and I love being in London. It's a beautiful city, you know, fantastic parks and. But it also has the history there as well and the museums. Um, I mean, those are probably my three favorite places to go anywhere. Um, but in a nutshell, when it comes back to having a home and being someplace, you know, I still dream about being back home in Texas too, in the hill country somewhere. Yeah, the great state of Texas. Well, Greg, we appreciate your time and support uh, today as far as uh, just giving us a little bit about yourself and talking about the the foundation and your role with with us and just your support throughout the year and we we look forward to 2021. We know this year has been challenging in many ways, but we've gotten through it together and certainly appreciate all that you bring to the table uh in support of this organization and our EOD family. So please yeah, we, we certainly appreciate your time and, and look forward to, to what's happening in the future. Absolutely. Thank you, Greg, so much for being on today. It was really, really good to hear your story and uh, and also sharing some of your insights and, and even your favorites. I enjoyed that. So <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you both very much for all you have done and, and been doing for the foundation. And I love these podcasts. I listen to them every week. Uh, and I you guys are doing a tremendous job for for the community, and um, I appreciate getting getting to spend the time with you all. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Have a great weekend. Yep. Take care. All right. Bye, guys. All right. Bye. Right, bye. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.